Hello, North Carolina. Welcome to The Dirt. My name is Brian Powell. I am your host. Thank you for joining us on this, our inaugural show. I want you to mark your calendars because from now on, the fourth Tuesday of every month at noon is going to feature this new go-to program for environmental news and stories related to environmental justice. We are broadcasting from the studio of WSHA-FM on the campus of historic Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. You can listen to us live on 88.9 in Raleigh, 102.1 in Rocky Mount, and 102.3 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And you can stream us on the internet at WSHAFM.org or by downloading the TuneIn app on your phone. So let me tell you a little bit about what to expect on this program today and in the future. Um, Ultimately, this is going to be a conversation about the health of our planet and the people on it, uh, particularly in the tiny corner of Earth that we call North Carolina, uh, the tiny corner of Earth that many of us are calling home. Uh, We're going to talk about how you can help keep our home clean and healthy for everyone. We're going to talk to people across the state who are out there every day fighting to make sure our waters are pristine and drinkable, our air clear and breathable, uh, fighting to power our communities with wind and sunlight and the jobs and prosperity that come with those things. We're going to talk about public health and we're going to talk a lot about justice, everything from coal ash to hog waste and more. I think I'm going to learn a lot. I know y'all are going to learn a lot. Uh, And just here in a couple minutes, we're going to dive right into a conversation about environmental justice with two brilliant and wonderful guests. Here in the studio, we've got Chandra Taylor, a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center. She's an expert on many things, but in particular, she's one of North Carolina's leading voices on the subject of environmental justice. And also with us is the esteemed Pastor Sylvester Williams. He is a community leader in Durham, North Carolina. And he's here to kind of be a voice for the voiceless, to shine a light uh, on a community in Southeast Durham, the Eastern community, whose health and well-being, um, and in some sense, very existence is endangered by the construction of a new highway in Durham. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to let you all know about some of the great work behind this show. First, a big thank you to WSHA for hosting this program. The combination of community conversation and playlists full of jazz, blues, funk, reggae, Latin, African, gospel. You really cannot beat it. If you like The Dirt, I hope you stay tuned in uh, for the other great programs taking place on WSHA throughout the week. I also want to let you all know about the North Carolina Conservation Network. I'm the communications director at Conservation Network, and this show would not be possible without it. Uh, If you don't know already, Conservation Network is a statewide network of nearly 100 environmental, community, and environmental justice organizations focused on protecting our air, our water, our wildlife, our public health, you name it. Basically, if it's dirty, Conservation Network is trying to clean it up. We have a brilliant policy team dedicated to voicing environmental concerns to our state lawmakers and analyzing the bills coming out of the General Assembly. There's an incredibly dedicated team of organizers and outreach professionals who are keeping the public informed about how you can help keep the state clean. And let me tell y'all, it is not easy working on environmental issues in North Carolina in 2017. Uh, Anytime really, but particularly this year. Uh, The folks at Conservation Network and its affiliates are truly unspoken heroes. So check out their website. It's www.ncconservationnetwork.org or NC Conservation on Twitter. And speaking of which, you can follow this program, The Dirt, on Twitter at The Dirt FM. So I want to turn now to our first two guests, Chandra Taylor and Pastor Sylvester Williams. Uh, Thank you for being here, y'all. Thank Thank you for having us. Uh, Chandra, I want to uh, 
very quickly so that everyone's on the same page. I know this, this may be a subject that many listeners are familiar with, but it might be a subject that many listeners are completely unfamiliar with. But environmental justice, uh, can you define it for us? What is environmental justice? So basically, we're looking at and what we should aim for is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of people of color and modest wealth people in environmental decision making um, and enforcement of our environmental laws and in implementation as well. Um, all of our federal agencies are charged with identifying and, and addressing disproportionate adverse impacts um, of, its, of their activities on communities of color and modest wealth communities. Um, they're charged with this by virtue of the uh, Federal Executive Order 12898. Um, they are set with the task of looking for um, the actual existence of activities that we know result in people of color getting dumped on more likely, um, modest wealth people getting dumped on more, more like being more likely to get dumped on, um, looking at how um, these communities, my, our communities, are less likely to get environmental benefits and more likely to get environmental burdens. That's great. And I think um, for listeners uh, in the North Carolina Triangle area, it's good to know that the environmental justice movement kind of began in North Carolina um, back in the early 70s in Warren County, where uh, toxic waste was being dumped into a county that was um, very high uh, population of people of color and um, the first protests against that kind of thing began back then there's also issues with landfills in Orange County and there's a, a lot of different ways in which these kinds of injustices manifest themselves so what what other kinds of things are we talking about just in a general sense oh wow um, so landfills are more likely to be sited, particularly hazardous waste landfills are more likely to be sited uh, near communities of color. Um, you're looking at Superfund sites and who is living in close proximity to Superfund sites. These are communities of color. Um, looking at the exclusion of communities of color from receiving uh, basic amenities like Water and, water and sewer services. Um, those are, and, and highway projects. Highway projects are, are very likely to run through or run over uh, communities of color and modest wealth communities, uh, despite, you know, lots of efforts to say what, you know, what they would like to see. Uh, lots of efforts to say this road project could go somewhere else. Um, and I think, you know, that's what Pastor Williams has been fighting against in Durham. Right. Let's let's talk about highway projects. Let's talk about the Easton Connector in particular. Um, Pastor Williams, I think a little history uh, briefly would be useful for our listeners. Can you tell us about the history of the Easton Connector? The Easton Connector was born out of the uh, 147 highway project. Uh, and with it, what it was that they decided in the 1960s that uh, they would run these roads, which many in the city of Durham of minority <coughs> African-Americans uh, decided there was something that was done against them to slow the uh, African-American progress in the city of Durham. And so that road was created then, and but because they never had the funding 
it sort of set on the books. It was never implemented or put through. Fast forward to 2007, and we realized that the state of North Carolina acknowledges that <clears throat> what they did in the General Assembly uh, acknowledged the racist institutions that they had created here in the state. And part of that was the creating of the 147 North, which the East End Connector was a byproduct of it. Of it. The thing that happened is that on um, the earlier part of, of the trying to get this loop mine to build a loop road around uh, the city of Durham is that they wanted to go to the northern part of Durham where it was called the Eno Loop. And with that part, uh, people came out, say, because there were endangered animals in that area, so they decided not to build it there. Well, when they decided not to build it there, with loop money, if you don't use it, you lose it. It's like $200 million, according to Ty Cox, who's on the, uh, for the state transportation. Um, and he was saying that we, there was a risk of losing $200 million if we didn't build it. And so what they did, they moved to the southern part of Durham, where they decided to build it, and what we call now the East End Connector. Now, with the building of it, one thing that they did not do, did not take into consideration, is that it's a predominantly elderly minority community. We had uh, uh, made news with uh, University of North Carolina, came out and did an environment assessment with the graduate students there at UNC Chapel Hill, and one of the things they determined is that, that minorities, uh, lower income people, are being disproportionately impacted by the East End Connector being built with them saying that that did not get any traction with the ones that was doing it so well, they decided to build it anyway and when they started building it, one of the things they did is that uh, as we said that in the northern part of durham they said it was about endangered animals but then they come to the southern part of durham and there were fishing ponds that people have on record where they were going fish they poison the waters to build these thin connector and then once they did that the other thing they did too is that uh one of the uh, the environment assessment done by the state of north carolina they said that what's going to be released is more MSATs, or mobile source air toxins. These are things that actually poison the community. So the construction of the highway that was kicked down from the northern side of Durham to protect some endangered species up there um, is now being constructed in your community, kind of splitting the community in half, poisoning the water, poisoning the air. Um, what can you do? What, what's next? What's, what's Well, what we did, we filed a Title VI complaint. Uh, <clears throat> in Washington, D.C., and they accepted our complaint, said that we have legitimate calls for where we are, where we stand, what we're trying to do. And right now we're waiting to get some type of response from them. One of the things that we know from times past is that any time that there's an issue like this, unless there's some type of monetary compensation or something to be done, then nothing happens. So what we've done, we've also requested some type of compensation monetarily because since they've already started, the building of these thin connectors to compensate the people in the community whose health will be impacted by the MSATs or mobile source air toxins that's going to be released into the air and also for the families that's going to be impacted by this new highway coming through the community. Chandra, let me ask you, how common are these kinds of financial um, restitution kind of awards with these kinds of cases, Title VI cases? So unfortunately, they're not very common. Um, what so Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 basically prevents discrimination in the use of federal funding. Um, and the big stick with the filing of a Title VI action 
would be that the federal aid, um, the, the entity that is passed along the federal aid, so in this instance, Federal Highway Administration, um, to the federal aid recipient, the state of North Carolina, they actually have the authority to pull back money that they gave to the state to stop the project. Now, at this point, you know, pro the project is underway, but they actually did accept um, the Eastern Community's complaint, which is, is, is remarkable in itself. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency, on the other hand, is very slow in addressing complaints. Um, and I understand you'll get into more of that discussion later. But so there's an example here of, you know, F FHWA has taken up um, this complaint and, and hopefully is in the process of addressing it. One of the problems with uh, these complaints is that often that by regulation, the interaction after uh, collecting data from collecting information from the complainant, in this case East End and Pastor Williams and his community, then the, the federal government and the state government are talking to each other, but not necessarily talking to the complainant. So, you know, they're trying, they could be at this point trying to work something out, but I do think it's important and that people should know that there's a, there's, you know, a responsibility for our government to be in contact with the community. And if there's going to be meaningful participation in the process by people, then you have to be in contact with the people along the way. So, but you know, making making a statement that there should be some restitution or there should be some, you know, compensation for health, I mean, that's something that should be heard. And if there's, you know, you know, something down the line that results in, you know, changes and regulations um, to provide, you know, some type of, you know, funds that can make the community more whole, that would be wonderful. Unfortunately, at this point, that is not how things usually go in this context. Um, but, you know, I think it's really remarkable what the Eastern community has done thus far. Yeah, I think it is too. Pastor Williams, um, if you were going to address other communities who are about to face a similar fight, what would you tell them to do? What lessons maybe have you learned from this long struggle? I would tell them to be diligent, be proactive, uh, get in contact with the resources such as Chandra, I mean, people who know to help you along the process because she was the one that came to us and spoke to us and told us about the Title VI complaint, which we were not aware of, that we would actually file a Title VI complaint. So making use of the resource that you have and also be diligent. I mean, don't give up because they tell you that it can't be done. I mean, we're citizens, we pay taxes. We have just as much right as everyone else to make sure that our communities are protected. And I would say not to give up and to push forward. And most importantly, as a pastor, to seek the Lord Jesus, amen. Amen, and you have, um, you've been fighting this for a long, long time. Are you gonna stick with it? I mean, oh yes, yes, I mean, we, we're not, we have no plans to give up on. I mean, we, we've been told that our complaint has been accepted and we wanna see it all the way through to the end. Okay. Um, thank you both for being here so much. I think we have to head to a break. I want to thank you too. Uh, and thank everybody out there for listening to The Dirt on WSHA FM. We have expanded services on 102.1 in Rocky Mount and 102.3 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And again, you can stream us on the internet at WSHAFM.org or on the TuneIn app on your smartphones. I want you to stay tuned for the next segment. We're going to dig into a conversation about hog waste. We're going to talk about Title VI a little bit and the disproportionate impacts uh, that hog operations in eastern North Carolina have on communities of color there. So stay tuned. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Dirt, brought to you by the North Carolina Conservation Network. For the second part of our show today, we're going to be digging into a topic that's been red hot in the legislature lately. It centers around some of the major hog operations dotting the countryside in eastern North Carolina and how they impact neighboring communities there. Uh, to talk about it, we are joined by Elsie Herring. Uh, she's an organizer for the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network and a longtime resident of eastern North Carolina. Also here in the studio, we have Will Hendrick, a staff attorney for Waterkeeper Alliance. He manages their Pure Farms, Pure Waters campaign. If you'd like to join in, give me a call at 1-800-241-0421. Again, that's 1-800-241-0421. Mr. Hendrick, I want to start with you today. Help us get on the same page here. We did a similar kind of catching listeners up to speed in the in the first segment. Um, there are, we hear a lot of conversation about hog farms out east, these kind of big hog operations. There's very controversial. I see headlines about this all the time. I've seen it going back decades, but particularly in the last few weeks. So I guess my first question is, what what are these operations really? I hear them described as hog farms. Are they farms in the traditional sense? They are not. Uh, and in the technical legal sense, they're referred to as concentrated animal feeding operations uh, or CAFOs. And I think the use of the word farms is truly a misnomer um, because it harkens back to an agri agricultural production model that we just don't see here anymore. Um, this is an industry, specifically the, the hog production industry, that has significantly expanded while concentrating uh, in North Carolina. And I think to, to get an idea of how far we've come from the old little house on the prairie, American Gothic view of farming to where we are now in these industrialized operations, it's, uh, it's possibly useful here in North Carolina to track the growth of this industry along around the same time frame as the growth of Michael Jordan as a basketball player. So that's not going back very far. It's not. In fact, this industry consolidation really took off in the 80s and 90s. So back when some of your listeners might have been watching Michael Jordan win a national championship in 1982, there were more than 11,000 hog farms in North Carolina and only about 2 million hogs. Like I said, that industry has significantly consolidated. There are far fewer farms now, and yet we're raising far more pigs. So if you fast forward to Michael Jordan's sort of second championship run, by that time there were, we'd gone from 11,000 farms all the way down to 3,000 farms. But in that same time span, we'd gone from 2 million hogs all the way up to 10 million hogs. And we've stayed at around that 9 to 10 million number. Uh, ever since then, making North Carolina the second largest state in terms of hog production in the country. So I think a lot of people listening, they might say, well, what, what's wrong with that? I like my bacon. And you know, we're probably getting cheaper bacon because we've got a lot of hogs here and they're local. What, what's the actual harm uh, that these operations are causing? Sure. And that's a, that's a good point because agriculture is an important part of North Carolina's industry. Uh, and, and we're not taking... The position that 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 industry should leave it's a it's only a problem when you consider the waste management the volumes of waste that are generated in now these concentrated locations within the state wastes what do you mean by that i mean the feces and urine produced by the animals that are raised for slaughter i see and i i think it's 
you know, you, you questioned whether or not farm was the appropriate uh, terminology. And I think an analogy uh, is, is apt here um, because when you're talking about these CAFOs, these mega farms, they're not really the same thing as, as a traditional farm. And I think, uh, for instance, if you took a, an NFL lineman and plopped him in a high chair and fed him Gerber, you may want to call him a baby, but that's, that's kind of a misnomer. More to the point, you're going to want to get a bigger diaper. And so that's why we're talking about waste management, because that's the problem here. There's okay. no problem with meat production. The problem is you're producing intense volumes of waste. And then the way that you're managing that waste is the same archaic technology that was utilized back when those farms were much smaller and much more spread out. And I want to I want to talk about that probably with fewer sports metaphors from Ms. Herring here. That these are large amounts of waste, and I think everyone knows when they visualize this that is an unpleasant substance, smell, fumes. Tell me about what it's like for the communities who have been there for a long time, and then all of a sudden start they start to see these operations kind of build up over time. What is it like? living next to in the shadow of these operations these operations consist of numerous buildings where these animals are kept <coughs> and there's also a lagoon or some refer to it as what it really is a cesspool where this animal waste is stored and they remove the animal waste by spraying it onto what is considered are called spray fields, where they actually have sprayers. Uh, they have many different types, but what it does is release this animal waste into the atmosphere. And in this animal waste, you know, of course, you have the feces, you have the urine, you have hydrogen sulfide gas, you have ammonia. There's other gases and chemicals that's also in this waste. And as it's being released into the atmosphere, this is what we have to breathe in. So it's not just unpleasant. It sounds like it's dangerous. It is. It's quite dangerous because it's toxic on top of just the waste itself being in there. And it can find itself on your house, on your lawn, on your cars. And I've seen it on cars where it actually eats away the paint. Wow. And it can cut your breath off, make your eyes start running water. You start gagging and coughing, you get upset. There's anxiety that comes with this because where should any, why should anyone have to live where animal waste is being sprayed into your living space? We have to breathe. And from what I understand, these operations have a, a disparate impact on communities of color out east. These facilities are predominantly located in people of color, Latino, and Native American communities. And uh, they're in high concentration. We have in Duplin County, 2.2 million pigs. That is a lot of pigs. That's a lot of pigs and even more waste. So what, what can be done to protect these communities from this kind of pollution, this waste, these toxins? Well, this is an issue that we've done a lot of work on along with other organizations to address the situation because we don't want to live under these kind of conditions, but we have no choice. We are forced to. So we organize to bring attention to it, and hopefully at some point in time they'll be made to clean up their act 
There have been systems that have been identified that could help alleviate this situation, and I'm hopeful that at some point in time that we may see that happen. But I would love to see the Lagones system done away with. I, in that vein, I'd like to talk about Hurricane Floyd and Hurricane Matthew and the responses by the state government to each. So after Hurricane Floyd hit, a lot of these farms and a lot of eastern North Carolina, which is located in a floodplain, were flooded. And um, a lot of swine were killed. Uh, the, the lagoons flooded in some cases. What happened after Hurricane Floyd? Will? Sure. Um, prop- probably one of the most impactful steps that was taken um, in the wake of that environmental disaster was to prevent similar disasters from causing similar impacts to water quality uh, and public health. And specifically, um, there was a substantial investment by the state uh, in excess of $18 million in a voluntary program that hog farms could take advantage of to remove these inherently vulnerable facilities from the 100-year floodplain. And as a result of that investment by the state, Uh, and the implementation of that program by the division of, excuse me, by the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, a number of vulnerable hog facilities were removed from the 100-year floodplain that otherwise would have been flooded in Hurricane Matthew. That sounds like a decent idea. Ms. Herring, does the community uh, of folks out in Eastern North Carolina, do they support those kinds of efforts? Well, any kind of effort that alleviates these kind of situations is a good thing, but we're still left with the same situation that we had before the hurricanes came through. And as long as they exist as they are, it's just a matter of time before we have another natural disaster that will have us in the same place that we are now, still dealing with the overpopulation of animals in our backyards. So in the first segment, uh, Ms. Taylor, Chandra Taylor with the Southern Environmental Law Center mentioned that when when we're talking about disparate impact um, pollution issues, that Title VI might be a tool that some communities can use to fight back against pollution in their backyards. Is that something that has been at play in uh, your uh, situation? Oh, yes. Title VI has been uh, invaluable in that it's brought some light to the situation that we're dealing with. And they have some suggestions of how we could move together, the industry and the community people, as well as government agencies, of how we could address the uh, animal situation as it exists today. Um, It's long overdue to do away with the spray field and the lagoons. And by they, you mean the Environmental Protection Agency? The Environmental Protection Agency. Which uh, they, hopefully they, they uh, will do more than they've done in the past, but they did write a letter saying that our health is being compromised and the states of North Carolina is not doing enough to protect people like myself that live near these facilities. Will, what can we expect to come from that letter? Well, the letter itself was an expression of concern by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Um, subsequently, the petitioners in that matter have engaged in mediation with the Department of Environmental Quality. Um, and the contents of that mediation are, are confidential, but we are 
optimistic that uh, a new administration under Governor Cooper, Cooper and Secretary Regan will take seriously the concerns that have been expressed for years now by affected communities. And I think it's important to emphasize that, that Title VI is a legal tool available to individuals who are suffering from disparate impact caused by actions taken by recipients of federal funding. Here, that recipient was the State Department of Environmental Quality. The action taken was the permitting of those approximately 2,300 hog farms. And the disparate impact was stark, statistically significant to the tune of, you know, the proportions of African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans living within three miles of one of these industrial swine facilities are 1.4, 1.26, and 2.39 times higher than the percentage of non-Hispanic whites. So the, the impact on these communities of color is stark. And we have simply asserted that there can be more done by the environmental agency to protect these affected communities from this disproportionate harm that they're suffering from. So I'm curious, we talked about um, an effort to remove some of these facilities from the floodplain after an environmental disaster struck Hurricane Floyd. And another, we had another environmental disaster strike Hurricane Matthew just last year. And I'm wondering what, what has the response been to that hurricane and that disaster and that flooding in contrast with what we saw after Floyd? Is there political will to do something similar or more? I have not been aware of anything, anything being done to address the situation since Matthew came through. As a matter of fact, if anything, it's probably maybe moving at the same pace. And the reason I'm thinking on those terms is because I know people personally that have not been able to get back into their homes yet because of Matthew. And when Matthew came through, there was so much flooding and again, pigs drowning, lying around in water, you know, contaminating our groundwater, odor getting released into the air. And um, I don't see, I don't, I really don't see where they've done much to improve. Indeed, arguably the political will is, has shifted in the opposite direction of where we would hope it would go, uh, as recently depicted in the fight over House Bill 467 which reduced legal remedies that would otherwise have been available to the community members that we were discussing who are, who are suffering the impacts of inadequate and archaic waste management. And the legislature not only enacted legislation that would reduce their legal remedies, but in fact overrode the governor's veto when he stepped in and said, it's unfair to be singling out a particular industry and affording them these, these favoritism, these actions of favoritism through uh, legislative intervention. So until the decision makers in the legislature uh, take more seriously the, the plight of North Carolinians who are suffering from the pollution caused by these hog farms, we're going to have a long and hard fight ahead of us. What about on the administrative side? We say that Governor Cooper vetoed 467. That sounds promising. What other steps, if any, has the has the governor or his staff taken since Matthew, or really just to, in general, um, address environmental justice issues even more broadly than that, or acknowledge them? Or what do you hope and expect from the governor going forward? Well, I would like for the governor, if it's possible, for him to 
take up the torch along with us to help educate the legislators to get them to understand and to hear from the people who are impacted what our lives are like. And we need someone to come to a judgment that after about 30 years of forcing people to live with animals in their waste, that someone will say enough is enough and really bring about some true changes that will alleviate this situation. And very quickly, we've been talking a lot about hog operations, but that is not the only kind of concentrated animal feeding operation at play in North Carolina polluting the countryside. Can Will, can you tell me about poultry? Yeah, uh, and that's, it's an important one to keep in mind because, in fact, uh, the Department of Environmental Quality has recently reported that poultry CAFOs are actually the largest and fastest growing source of uh, nutrients from animal agriculture uh, in the state. And what's shocking is that the state Department of Environmental Quality does not know where the vast majority of these poultry facilities are located. In fact, many of them are right there on the same spots where these hog farms are that we've been talking about. So they're exacerbating the already disparate impact that we've been discussing in the hog farming context. And I think until the state seriously uh, addresses this growing uh, contributor of uh, animal agricultural pollutants, then you know we're we're gonna you know be moving along with fits and starts. Uh, I think that the, you asked a question about what the uh, the administration can do. I think one thing that would be uh, really helpful is to see the administration take steps to identify uh, the location of these poultry operations. Uh, and identify the, the volume of waste generated and ensure that that waste is being managed appropriately. I don't think that's too much to ask given the problems that neighbors of those facilities can suffer. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there is a lot of work to be done going forward on this. I really want to thank you both for joining me uh, on our first episode of The Dirt. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, and I come back, please, anytime that you want to because this story is one that has been going on for a long time and there is not a resolution in sight so you know this is something that we need to continue talking about on a regular basis it's very important we're going to head to a break you are listening to shaw university radio wsha fm your donations make a difference go online to wshafm.org and click donate now and show your support for the dirt with brian powell by donating and following us on twitter at the dirt fm this program is brought to you by the North Carolina Conservation Network. You are listening to The Dirt with Brian Powell. This is the final segment of the show today. It's gone by really fast. And we're going to be talking about some of the latest environmental news out of the state legislature. Uh, there's a lot to get to, so let's dive right on in. I want to welcome a panel into the studio. Joining us are Matthew Starr, Upper News Riverkeeper. Cassie Gavin, Director of Government Relations with the North Carolina Sierra Club, and Mary McLean Asbill, Senior Attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for having Thanks me. For having Thank us. you. So let's start first with a Bill H-576. It is called the Aerosolization of Leachate and Wastewater, which seems a little bit dense. Uh, can someone tell me what this bill is, what it does? Sure. So just imagine that you're shooting garbage juice through a snowblower. This bill would allow municipal landfills 
to dispose of their leachate, which is the wastewater that collects at the bottom of a landfill, either through runoff from rain or just through the liquid that drains out of the landfill, and shoot it through a mister. And like one of those things where you're going out. Yeah, like a little mister fan, exactly. Yeah, yeah, just a gigantic industrial version of those. And what they contend is that this would would remove all of the harmful contaminants out of that landfill leachate, which is ridiculous. Mary McLean, is that true? Will it remove the contaminants? It will not remove the contaminants, and our fear is that they will blow, you know, in, in little droplets of water onto neighboring properties, communities, schools, you know, whatever happens to be near the landfill facility. I'm not going to lie. This plan sounds a little zany. Um, <laughs> we're shooting garbage juice through a fan to get rid of it. Is there, I'm probably wrong. What's the science behind this operation? That's the problem. We don't have the science and that's what's missing. Um, perhaps if there was some science to show that it was safe, that would be useful to have before a bill requiring our Department of Environmental Quality to allow it passes. So I have I have seen that this process has been used in other places, maybe in different climates. Is that it's really humid here. Today is a perfect example with all the rain and the mugginess that we experience in North Carolina, and that does not jive well with this type of process. Um, the fear is that the contaminants will hang in that heavy air and stick around a lot longer than they might in a drier climate. So there, we, to Cassie's point, it would be great if we had some scientific studies that showed where this technology might work and where it's inappropriate, but, but that's lacking here. So I'm wondering why the General Assembly is weighing in on this. If we're looking at something where we want to evaluate the science and the efficacy of the process, can't DEQ or the Department of Air Quality do that? Why, why, why is the legislature interfering yeah, in that process? So our Department of Environmental Quality can most definitely, if given the opportunity, determine if this is a proper disposal method of landfill leachate. However, they're not being given that opportunity as being superseded by this bill, which looks to be a direct handout to the person who invented the technology. Who is supporting this bill? Who's opposing the, it? This bill has one sponsor, and that's Representative Jimmy Dixon out of the eastern part of North Carolina. Not a lot of landfills in his district? Not a lot of municipal landfills, I don't think. All right, so we've got... Bill number one is spraying garbage juice through a fan. Um, let's move on to Senate Bill 434, which is a, a large bill. It has a lot in it. Um, but one of the more controversial aspects is a repeal on a bag ban, uh, a plastic bag ban. Currently, they're banned along the Outer Banks and parts of the Carolina coast. What's the history of this ban in the first place, Mayor McLean? It came about in 2009. Um, the North Carolina General Assembly passed the statute which creates this plastic, this single-use plastic bag ban for the entire Outer Banks. I think at first it was smaller, now it covers all the counties that make up the Outer Banks. And it was spearheaded by Senator Mark Bassnight, which, you know, lots of people down at the General Assembly are always trying to undo anything that he did. But at any rate, um, it's been in effect since 2009. It was 
brought about because of a couple of reasons, a lot of litter on our beautiful beaches in the Outer Banks, and they were noticing that a lot of it was just these plastic bags that you get your Subway sandwich in or your six-pack or your beach towel, you know, whatever you buy at a beach store. They were it was trash on the beach and that type of material is also very harmful to marine life particularly sea turtles uh, people in working in the sea turtle hospitals and um, for fish and wildlife service were finding a lot of turtles ingesting these plastic bags so they decided to create this ban because they look like jellyfish they look like jellyfish and the turtles like to eat jellyfish and can't distinguish between the two Cassie, is the ban unpopular? Again, why is Raleigh weighing in on a local issue? Actually, the ban is very popular in the Outer Banks where it exists. There was a survey done by the Outer Banks Chamber of Commerce recently um, of its 1,100 members, and all but two of nearly 500 responses support the ban. Um, So it's popular with small businesses. It's popular with regular folks. Has it hurt business at all or tourism on the coast? There's no evidence that we've seen of that. Okay. So what, what are the arguments being pushed by the people who want to repeal this ban in the first place? Some lobbyists down in the building are arguing that it's very expensive for the stores to um, get the reusable bags that we all use, you know, the cloth bags that you can take to the grocery store or the market. Um, and they're arguing that there's some software that they have to use to give everyone a nickel back when they bring in a reusable bag, but those are small fixes. You know, that doesn't need to be uh, chopped out of our laws and, you know, to repeal the ban. They can make tweaks to that software. Plus, we haven't heard it from the stores. Many stores love buying cloth bags that have their name on it. And and as always, well, not always, but routinely what we're seeing is legislation done with a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. And this is a prime. This is a, a perfect example of that. Yeah, there's no rush. They could sit down and figure out how can we make this easier on everybody. And recycling is not the answer here. From what I've seen, well, they're arguing that you know you could just recycle these bags. Like, what, what's the big deal? And I've seen evidence that the bags. It's not as easy to recycle a plastic bag. I don't think a lot of people know this. They churn up the sorting machines. Is that right? Well, all you have to do is visit your local supermarket. Every time I go, the the bins with the plastic, where you can drop off your plastic bags, are always overflowing, blowing around. And, you know, once once they're out in the environment, they're there. And they take a really long time to degrade. (laughs) So 434 still has to go through the house process. Do you all see this surviving? Where does this go from here? up to the house to decide it hasn't gone through the committee process yet so we hope that when a committee takes a look at it they'll take a hard look at this section and other parts of the bill that are harmful to the environment and the house is usually a little more responsive to local governments Um, many of the municipalities and counties in the outer banks have passed resolutions supporting the ban just recently so we hope to use that as a lobbying tool and hopefully convince some house members the senate didn't really want to hear about the local governments but hopefully the house will uh, real quick, real quick, other environmental aspects of 434 that you want to bring up? Yeah, we're seeing another attack on buffers. We've seen this attack in previous legislative sessions. This is attacking very specifically the Catawba River buffer rules, uh, asking for a complete repeal of those rules, which is ridiculous. Buffers are 
the front line protections for our streams, rivers, creeks against many, many, many different types of pollution. And again, we're hoping that the House will, will take that in consideration of just how important buffers are to saving or protecting clean water and saving money down the road. I want to move on quickly to the Farm Act. Every year there is a Farm Act pushed in the legislature. And I have in my notes here, let's talk about the Farm Act, but there's nothing under it. Uh, what, what do we know about this bill? Right now it's very short and it's in committee tomorrow morning at 9 for discussion purposes only, which sounds great and transparent. What we expect will happen is that there will be a substitute bill tomorrow that will be a lot longer. Maybe we'll be wrong. Currently it's really just got two parts that, that we are involved with and um, the first one takes away the authority of counties to regulate very large industrial swine operations um, with, with their zoning. And not not small farms, not family farms, but just giant ones. And the operations, this, this the operations we were talking about in the previous segment. Exactly. That, that type of industrial scale takes away that uh, authority of local governments. And then the next part we're concerned with um, provides a way for um, farms that are going to store waste that will eventually be used as a renewable energy source to be exempt from odor rules. So renewable energy is great. We encourage turning bad things into good, but we need to protect communities, just like you were talking about in the previous segment, from you know things in their neighborhood like strong odor. So the proof is in the pudding on that one. You know, we don't really know what it means or how far it will go. Do you expect the debate to draw out very long or is this something that's gonna go through really quickly? Well, we're, we're hoping that we do a well enough job down in the building and, and through public outreach that we can drag out the debate and have uh, community members and, and everyone be able to weigh in on decisions that those sitting in Raleigh are going to have a direct impact on their local community. So it, it might get shoved through, but we're, we're going to work really hard to make sure that the affected communities have a voice. Great. So let's turn now to billboards, uh, an interesting topic we've got a little bit of time for. There are at least five bills related to billboard regulations that have been introduced in the legislature. One of them, 581, is before the Finance Committee. Cassie, what are these bills trying to do? Yeah, so um, there are five billboard bills, and four of them were combined this morning and passed in House Finance Committee. So um, a, a small bill, House Bill 581, was turned into a lengthy bill containing 25 sections that would allow more billboards um, to be turned into digital billboards, allow billboards to be moved and relocated to different areas where they may not currently be allowed, and allow um, a lot more trees to be cut around billboards on highways and medians. Um, so overall, a lot more flashing, distracting things on the highways. Right, yeah, I want to break that down a little bit. Digital billboards, what what are they? What is wrong with a digital billboard? So one of the things in the bill limits um, the changing of digital billboards to every every six seconds. Um, and they, change, they change images every mm -hmm. six seconds. So that means, you know, as you're driving down the road, you could see like 10 different versions of a sign as you're driving 60 miles an hour down the road, for example. So that was discussed in committee, but um, nevertheless, it passed this morning. Remarkable. And 
increasing the number of billboards. I imagine that's a similar effect as having a digital billboard. If you just have more of them along the mile, people's eyes are constantly distracted. So this bill wouldn't necessarily increase the absolute number of billboards, but what it would do is allow billboards to be relocated to places where they may not be now. So who is opposing these these bills? Uh, the Department of Transportation spoke up in committee and um, spoke in opposition to the just compensation part of the bill that would increase costs for removing them. And local municipalities are upset with this as well, right? It kind That's of, correct. Okay, gotcha. Um, we've only got a few minutes left. I really want to talk about uh, what a big story, Hurricane Matthew relief. Uh, recently, North Carolina um, received news that it was getting a mere 1% of requested funds from the federal government uh, to help with Matthew relief and the communities who were affected by flooding. What can we expect? Can we get money from the legislature? Where are we going to get money to make up the, the billions of dollars we need uh, to help rebuild eastern North Carolina, Matthew? Yeah, so this is something that's ongoing. You alluded to um, current federal government appropriated 1% of what North Carolina asked for. Um, after a hurricane, there's there's lots of money that needs to be spent and not a lot of funding sources. And it doesn't appear that our General Assembly is willing to put a lot of money behind uh, efforts to make sure that the next flood, the next hurricane, isn't as bad as the one we've just experienced. Um, but we are seeing some action taken. The city of Raleigh has committed to spend over four or to spend $400 million to update their sewer infrastructure. Uh, city of Raleigh and other municipalities had lots of sewer overflows, meaning they discharged raw human waste in, into our creeks, streams, and rivers. And city of Raleigh is, is putting a lot of money behind that to remove that threat. Um, it'd be great if we saw other industries, such as the industrial swine, swine industry, um, put some money behind removing the current 62 or buying out the current 62 swine facilities located closer, closest to our rivers. Do you feel like that'll happen? Um, we're hearing that some money, but not nearly enough will be put to that. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to wrap up. We have uh, just a minute left here on our first episode of The Dirt with Brian Powell, brought to you by the North Carolina Conservation Network. Um, I want to thank our guests, Cassie Gavin, Matthew Starr, Mary McLean Aspel for being here. It has been wonderful to talk to you all. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Us. Thank you for having us. And I hope people will visit www.ncconservation.org for more information on our organization and follow The Dirt FM on Twitter to learn more about this show. And we're going to continue the conversation on Twitter in between shows. Again, this is the fourth Tuesday of every month at noon. You can tune in on 88.9 in Raleigh, or you can tune in to WSHAFM.org on your desktops or download the TuneIn app on your mobile phones. Thank you all.